You're listening to Culture Rich. Culture Rich. Welcome, I'm Christina Michelle, inviting you to join me for Culture Rich Conversations, an ongoing feature of Juno Afternoon. The suppression of literature that features BIPOC characters addresses the truth about the Black lived experience or is specifically written by Black authors is not uncommon. Each year, many of these books are either challenged or outright banned by schools, libraries, and the media. We're doing our part to bring these notable books out of the shadows. Today marks the beginning of a new series of episodes highlighting banned books by Black authors. Joined by our producer, Natasha Boozer, we'll discuss why this conversation matters, which book we're highlighting first, and how we personally relate to its themes. From KTOO and Juno, this is Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich Conversations is underwritten by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon. Celebrating Juno's diversity of culture, language, and heritage. The Black Awareness Association would like to take a moment to recognize that Culture Rich Conversations is broadcast from Flinket Ani. We acknowledge those families who made use of this land and waterways for thousands of years and still cherish it as an important part of their way of life for today and future generations. Gunalschish. Thank you. I'm Christina Michelle. I'm joined today by our producer, Natasha Boozer. And the book we're discussing today is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. Natasha, welcome, and let's get into the conversation. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about why we decided to have a band book club series of sorts. I don't even remember whose idea it was or how we came to it uh, necessarily, but I know it's a discussion that we started with Nia D maybe two seasons ago. Some of our listeners might recall. And, um, and it's such an important conversation to continue And we thought that we would share this information with you, our listeners, and we're hoping that it might encourage you to also maybe read along uh, with us and to think about these these authors and what their story and their message is and, and why they want to share it. So Natasha, sorry, do you want to add anything to that? No, you're good. Yes. So I know that before the school year started, there was a lot of talk about books being banned in different states around the country and different school districts in those states. Um, And I didn't pay a lot of attention to it when I first started hearing about it because I didn't think it would affect my children in their schools, but then one day it did. My daughter, I homeschool my children. Um, I have a fourth grader and a ninth grader. And my daughter is in fourth grade and um, she was doing an assignment Um, online. And there was a book that popped up for her to read a passage from. And I clicked on the book, the link for the book that was in the program that her school pays for. And when I clicked on it, um, it said, you can't read this book. I thought that was a mistake. So I went back and tried it again. And it said the same thing. And so I Googled the book and it's the book we chose today. It's one countless awards, has been reviewed countless times and has so many accolades. And I couldn't understand why it was being banned. And then I went into the book and then I saw why. And so I remember thinking she's in fourth grade. This is a public school and 
this book is being offered as reading for her grade, but it's being banned by the school district. So I brought that up to you and I thought, you know what? Let's just do a banned book club by Black authors. And you thought it was a great idea. And so, you know, that's how I came to being very passionate about this topic and bringing these books to light on our show to highlight these books that should not be banned at all. Awesome. Thank you for that reminder. Now I remember the conversation. Um, (laughs) And can we talk a little bit about who's banning the books? Because when I think of a banned book, I think of, you know, like you can't get it anywhere. Um, And if you do get your hands on it, it's illegal to read it. Like the word banned just conjures up (laughs) this image. Um, But that's not necessarily the reality. So um, what are some reasons books get banned and and who's banning them? Right. So from what I could find on my own research, it looks like the books that are being banned now are books that refer to the enslaved and slavery and a time in America when um, that was the norm. Um, and these books are being banned in elementary schools and high schools um, in different schools around the country. And it's very unfortunate because what's happening is books that should be easy reading and tell the truth about American history are being taken away. And you can find them still in your public libraries, mm-hmm. um, hopefully, but in the school libraries, they're taking them away. And even online classes are taking them away. And it looks like the administration, um, the school districts in these states are the ones who are at the curriculum and the ones who are banning the books. Um, And it's very unfortunate because any book that has a reference to slavery or the enslaved or even talks about things that are derogatory towards America, that puts them in jeopardy of being banned and sometimes doesn't have to be very much to have a book be banned. Yeah. So I also, in, in my research, was reading about books being banned because they're not appropriate for the age level that they're suggested for. So like the one you were talking about for a fourth grader, um, but why wouldn't it be still available to like a higher level, like eighth grade or our high school versus just completely banned? And I don't know that you know, but I... Any thoughts on that? I don't know the specific reason, but I do think that, you know, you have to look at who you vote for because they're the ones who determine what your kids get to learn um, every school year. Um, And so if they think that a book is inappropriate for one grade, it's easy to take that next step and just decide, you know, let's just ban it for all grades Mm -hmm. because that takes care of the red tape involved in saying, well, this grade can read it, but this grade can't read it. Let's just ban it altogether. So I'm not sure if that's the exact reason, but that's from what I can find, how it ends up being banned for an entire school uh, grade of kids. That makes sense, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) You know, it's it's easy. Um, So the first book we chose is Brown Girl Dreaming, which tells the story of the author's childhood and how she grew up between South Carolina and New York. So um, Woodson wrote this book in verse, which means she wrote it in a series of poems rather than a narrative like traditional novels. 
And in these poems, she shares her experience growing up in the 60s and the 70s as an African-American. During this time, she was living with the remnants of Jim Crow while becoming more aware of the civil rights movement. So why did we choose this particular book to be the first in our discussion? Right. So we chose this book because this was the book my daughter was supposed to read. And I thought, okay, let me read through it and see what's so horrible about this book <laughs> that it had to be banned from nine and 10 year olds. Mm-hmm. And it, I know that you've read it. It, there was nothing in it that would cause anyone to clutch their pearls and say, <laughs> no, not my child. You know, it was actually a wonderful book. And um, after reading a few chapters or dozens of poems, because there's so many poems in this book, um, I thought this, this is a great book. Let's just dive right in, pick the first book that I found to be banned in my daughter's curriculum and go with that. So that's why I chose this book. Awesome. And have you read any other books by Jacqueline Woodson before? I haven't, unfortunately, but now I am, after reading this book, I want to read all of them. Um, it was it was, it was, was a great read, in my opinion. I really enjoyed it, and I was very disappointed in myself for not having read her books before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with you. Um, my first impression of the book was um, it was a little bit... I, well, I'll just say I didn't, I had the same experience. I didn't hear anything that I thought was shocking. I was still looking for um, the reason why it might have been banned. And by the end, I, I hadn't found it. Um, my first impression of the book, I thought that it has started off a little bit slow. And I have to say, I listened to it on Audible. And so I think I had a different experience than the one that you may have had if you actually read it. Um, what are your thoughts on your first impression? My first impression, I had never read a book that was written in a story told in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was nervous that I wouldn't be able to um, stick with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was actually amazing. And I found myself laughing and crying and just relating to her so much. I didn't grow up in the South, but I felt like I was transported there immediately. She did a wonderful job, um, in my opinion, of painting a picture and and drawing you into her story. Um, my first impression was that it was a beautiful way to tell a story. And I was so honored that I had the chance to read it. Did it surprise you that this book was suggested for fourth graders after reading it? So yes, but not in the way I think people would assume. Mm -hmm. I was surprised because it's so long (laughs) and it's so many poems (laughs) because I thought it's fourth grade. It's probably just, you know, seven or eight chapters and simple reading, but it was actually a lot of chapters and every page was a new poem. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking there's more, there's more, there's more, but Every single time I felt like, can I even finish this book? It's so many poems. I'm not a big poetry reader. Just I love poetry, but it's not my go-to. Um, but every poem that I read was like a new window into her history, into her childhood, into her memories. And the way that she writes is so descriptive and conjures up vivid 
um, pictures of what it must have been like to be her growing up in the different places she uh, was raised. And I just thought, yes, it's quite long. However, if you're nine or 10 years old, you're getting an amazing view of what it was like to grow up in the 60s and in the 70s and see America change from Jim Crow to civil rights movement and what it was like for kids in that age group to have to walk from one way of life into a new one. So I think in that retrospect, it wasn't a lot reading for a fourth grader, but being able to stick with the book for that long, mm -hmm. that's not fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's actually a real story. Might be difficult, um, but I'm glad that I was able to stick with it because it was very rewarding in the end. I agree with you. Why do you think that Jacqueline chose verse format when writing this book? I think it was an easier way to tell her story because it is so sad. There were so many sad moments that happened, whether it was, you know, her parents' divorce or losing people or her mother being away so much when she had to go to New York. I think that if you're writing about your childhood during a time of so much pain and so much struggle, telling it through verse is an easier way than just saying it the way it's normally written. I think it puts it in a position where it's it transports you there and you get the emotion without having to do with all the facts that are in that time period. You get to feel it. You get to have it like, like you're there yourself. I thought it was a great way to tell her story. So did you end up sharing it with Grace, with your daughter? I did. I did. And I should have thought about it before I just dove right in and shared it with her because I had to explain some things. I had to explain what Jim Crow was because she hasn't gotten to there yet in her social studies class. And I had to explain why they'd have to sit on the back of the bus um, when there's, you know, white people on the bus that time period. I had to explain um, different aspects that she wouldn't have any um, history with. Uh, so I did have her read it. She stuck with it for a couple of <laughs> chapters, but she's more into more animated fiction stories, science fiction. Um, but she, when she did sit with it, the few hours that we did do it, she appreciated that I took the time, but she didn't want to stick with it. So I understood. <laughs> Not her cup of tea. <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> well, if you're just tuning in today, our show's producer, Natasha Boozer, Boozer and I are discussing Brown Girl Dreaming, which is the first book we chose for our Banned Books by Black Authors series. We're talking about the author and just briefly discussing a summary of the book as well. Um, so Natasha, what themes stood out to you while reading Brown Girl Dreaming? So there were a lot of themes, more than I am used to in a book, but I think the ones that really stood out to me obviously was racism, mm -hmm. activism, civil rights. Towards the end of the book, you, you are introduced to the Black Power Movement. Religion was a big part in this book because she's Jehovah's Witness, but then when her uncle comes back from prison, he's a Muslim. And so, you know, she goes back and forth with that. You can also see how she begins to discover that she's a writer, even though her sister reads all the time and her brother is into, you know, science, she has trouble with words. And so you can see how she realizes. So I would say self-discovery is another thing because you can see how 
she realizes, oh, I'm a writer and words are my friend, you know? So yeah, those are the themes that stood out to me. I love that. And I love how you can see how um, her life changed based on where she was living. Um, the story takes place in three different settings. And so she speaks from her experience living in Columbus, Ohio, Greenville, South Carolina, and Brooklyn, New York. Um, do you have any thoughts about why the settings are so important to the telling of her story? Yes. So I love, love, loved the way each different setting had a different impact on her life and they were at different seasons, calendar seasons. So in the summer, she was in South Carolina um, and she loved it with her grandmother and her mm -hmm. grandfather. And she loved to take off her shoes and be in the garden with her grandfather. And you could see how she gained so much knowledge about life when she was in South Carolina. When she was in Ohio, it definitely seemed to focus more on the dynamic between her parents and how much her mother would miss South Carolina and how her father was like, I'm not going back there. I'm in the North and how that struggle became more prevalent as you moved on in the book. And then when she got to New York, you could see how she's much older now and she misses South Carolina very much, but this is her new normal. So I think each setting, you can see how she's learning what time of year it is and how important each setting was for her development in general. So an important theme throughout all of those times and settings was family. And can you talk a little bit about what you think it meant to, to Jacqueline? I think in this book, you can see that family means everything to her. Um, she didn't have a lot of friends in the beginning of the book. And even in the middle of the book, her friends kind of developed later on towards the end of the book. And so all she had was her brother and sisters and later on a younger brother and her grandparents and her mom and the people who live around them. So you could see when she had to leave South Carolina and move to New York, how much she missed her family because they were her whole life. So something as simple as getting your hair washed and you know, putting that grease in there and parting it. That was a whole social event for her. They would have the biscuits and they would sit down and spend time together and talk. And there'd be the grown folks talking and the kids trying to listen and get the grown folk talk, but be quiet. So it's not seen, just not, you know, anything to get in the way. And so you can see how family was a big part of her life. I know how much she missed her dad when her parents divorced and how she clung to her grandfather and called him daddy. That was the male figure in her life because her father was in Ohio. So I think without her family, it would have been a much different story. Um, but I think her having her grandmother there and just being in the kitchen, learning how to make collard greens and learning how to garden with her grandfather, it helped her shape who she was. It helped shape who she became as an adult. It was a huge part of her life. I just have to say that I love how you light up when you talk about this story. <laughs> it's really beautiful in the Sorry. way that you're describing it um, and the experience that you had in reading it. And um, 
if you do to our listeners, if you read this book, I definitely suggest that you actually read the the hard copy of the book because to me it helps you to paint the picture and it um, and it just becomes so much more vivid when your eyes are on the page if that's if that's if it's available and possible for you. Um, Natasha and I have been discussing the book Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson, the touching and powerful story of the author's childhood that took place in the 60s and 70s. Let's take a quick break. I'm Christina Michelle, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. Before we went to break, Natasha and I laid the foundation for the band book, Brown Girl Dreaming. It was written by Jacqueline Woodson. And we learned a little bit about the author and some of her background. And we're just discussing our thoughts on the book. So before we went to break, I was just commenting how I love how much the book resonated with Natasha. Natasha seems you're very connected to this story. And I love it. And I just have to say that I, too, read it or listened to it on Audible. And I was I didn't feel the same connection. And I hesitate to say that because I don't want to to uh, negatively impact how someone may decide whether to read it or not. Um, but yeah, I just I didn't get all of that from this book. But I love the way you're describing it because it makes me want to try again, to be honest. <laughs> so let's talk about why we think the book was called Brown Girl Dreaming. Any thoughts on that, Natasha? So I think I thought a lot about this question um, when I first considered it. And when I finished the book, I realized dreaming can be another way of remembering because mm. sometimes we dream about our memories. And so when you read at the end of the book, she talks about the process she went through while writing this book. And she said that it was her memories and it was her remembering what it was like. And she had to go back and ask family about the parts when she was in Ohio because she was a baby back then and she wasn't able to be aware of those memories but they were they vivid for her for her family and so she was able to go back to Ohio as an adult and 
there be able to put memories together. So I think it was called Brown Girl Dreaming because it was, it's a collection of her memories of her life. And that's just so beautiful to me. I love that. And we can see that Jacqueline loves writing because it allows her to create the world that she imagines. What world do you feel she created through her story? So there's um, a part in her book where she talks a little bit about that, where she wrote, when she was writing, she was writing a world where her family was normal because in social standards, her family was not normal. She had an uncle who was a Muslim. She had, her family had raised her as Jehovah's Witness. She had a brother who was in the hospital. She had a dad who was in Ohio while she was in South Carolina. So she didn't have the typical accepted at that time family structure. It was different. And she was different um, because she struggled with writing and reading as a young child. So she wrote the world that she hoped she could have lived in when she was writing her poetry, writing her short stories, making up stories. Um, she wrote a world she dreamed to live in. Do you think that there's an end to her story? I thought about this question as well. I don't think so because she, the book ends with her being, I want to say in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. She doesn't quite make it to middle school yet in mm -hmm. the book. So I don't think so. I think she has so much more to write and to share. So you can definitely, you can see how it continued on for sure. In the book, Jacqueline's mother tells her children that they'll experience a moment when you walk into a room and no one there is like you. What did she mean by this? So I think you and I can understand the meaning of this. <laughs> our mothers and our fathers have told us, you know, you're the only black person in the room. You have to be the best and you have to um, have great manners and say yes and thank you and please. And so I think that's what that was meant when her mother told her that in the book. It's early on when she says that and she's preparing, preparing her children who haven't experienced that before to be aware and how they're supposed to behave so that they can survive that moment. Mm -hmm. Because as a child, it's not easy to walk into a room and no one looks like you and there's no one that you're familiar with in that room. So I think she was trying to prepare her children as I think a lot of parents do just in general but in this specific time this was before or just at the inception of the civil rights movement so she wanted her children to be aware what to expect and how to um how to behave in those moments how to carry themselves rather in those moments have you had an experience like this that you can relate to yes I'm sorry. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. So I thought about what to share, because as an adult, you do experience it as a person of color, but you um, process it differently. As a child, you're still learning about these experiences. So I try to think back to being the first child to walk into a room where no one looks like me. And of course, I can relate. There are moments I can remember being very close to her age, eight, nine, 10 years old. And immediately recognizing that no one looks like me, even if it's just how my hair is um, or the clothes that I wear. When I was her age, I didn't have a lot. Obviously, our family was not um, 
as we weren't middle class, we were definitely below middle class. And so the clothes that I wore to school were um, donated. And I can remember walking into a classroom and everyone has nice clothes for school and they fit nicely. And, you know, they're also not people of color. And so I remember walking into a classroom and my clothes were tight in the wrong places. Because if you remember, I developed early as a young girl and I had hips early. <laughs> um, and so I didn't always have clothes that were age appropriate for my body type. And so with that being said, I can recall going into the classroom feeling so uncomfortable because I looked different, not just because of my skin or because of my hair not being pressed, but it was always you know, still a little bit in braids with a little um, clips at the end, <laughs> but also because my clothes were hand-me-downs, not even from an older sibling, because I was the oldest, but from, um, from being donated to our house and feeling like I didn't look nice. I looked, you know, not as good as the rest of the kids. And it makes you feel like you don't belong. Like you shouldn't be, like you feel already like you're an outcast from the very, from the onset. And I think as a child, either you learn how to cope with that and then rise above it, or you will always feel less than. And so one of the things that I appreciated about this author was that she put it in the book because so many children of color and not of color, but just in general can relate to being different and not having anyone to look to for support or encouragement to say, it's okay, keep going, you're gonna be fine. And you don't wanna stand out when you're so young and you're, such, you're awkward and trying to figure out who you are. You want to fit in. And so when you walk into a room and you can clearly see that you're different, then you wonder, how am I gonna fit in? Am I gonna make friends? Am I gonna always be different? And I think it was brilliant to put this in a book to let other kids know you're not alone. I have been through that and I'm okay. Yeah, I think right around fourth grade uh, is the first time that I remember being the only brown girl in class. And that might be when we first went to the same school together too. Yes. Um, but I remember looking back at pictures and thinking that like it's obvious now that I was the only brown girl, but I don't remember thinking it at the time. And part of that is I, I attribute to like my mom is from the South. She's from Louisiana. And my dad is from Alaska. He was born and raised here like myself. And I think that my dad went out of his way to shield us and try to keep us from thinking so much about the color of our skin. Um, and I think that my mom really wanted to drive that message home for us. And I think my dad kind of tempered it <laughs> a little bit. And so we didn't really talk about race very much um, when I was growing up. But I do remember it becoming a big deal when I left Juno and when I went to California for college. And I remember walking into a classroom and everybody was white. And I did, it's the first time I noticed it because my roommate said something. Like when we came in, we were both black and we walked in and she's like, we're the only black people in here. And from then on, it's like it's stuck in my head. And now everywhere I walk into, it's like there's a quick scan. And I'm like, oh, I'm the only one. Okay. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> so I I agree with you. I do think that it was wonderful for her to put it in the book, especially when it was intended for a younger audience. Um, that that it's something that does happen and that it's okay and um, that you're okay. So, um, Tasha, can you share maybe a, a favorite moment or a quote from the book? And I was thinking about this before when we were talking about it, uh, just before we came on the air. And I was thinking I didn't have a favorite quote, but that's actually not true. There is something that stood out to me. Um, and it was when she said, when there are many worlds, you can choose the one you walk into each day. And I do remember like playing that back a couple times because I was like, oh, that's deep. So that's one of my favorites. How about yourself? So the first one that came to my mind was when the book says, or when she says on paper, words never end. They live on forever. And that line resonated with me in a way I did not expect. In the moment when she says that in her book, she's trying to remember um, I think it's her grandfather who passes away, her uncle who's just gone to jail. And those two figures in her life were so impactful for her and she's lost them. And the only way they live on is in her memories. And this is, I think, also at a juncture where she's learning how to write stuff down. And she's saying, if I can just write them down on paper, they will live on forever. And I was just thinking, yes, I feel the same way about words. <laughs> because it's not just, it's not just to create a new world where you can um, let your imagination run wild, but also where you can write like journaling. You can write down what happened, what big thing impacted your life that day. So I think this particular moment in the book, if a fourth grader is reading this line, it lets them know that it's okay to write stuff down because it's one way to remember it you know, back that time they didn't have cell phones that took selfies and took pictures everywhere. So you had to write it down. Otherwise, did it even happen mm. the way that you thought it happened? And so I love this line so much because you could tell it's, it's a turning point for her. When she's writing this book, she writes from the perspective of, um, I think, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Mm -hmm. And so also in that way, I see it's appropriate for a fourth grader because that's their age. That's their, that's their, um, age range. But when she writes this line, it's so impactful because it shines a light on how children have memories and you want to hold on to them. Yes. As an adult, you try to think back to what it was like when you were nine, 10 years old, but if you didn't write it down or someone took a picture or at, in our generation videotaped it, you would not remember it properly. You wouldn't know that it happened. And so that line stood out in a very big way for me. What's Jacqueline's attitude towards God and religion and how do you think that they conflict? So I'm curious to hear your thought on this question <laughs> because you and I are very religious. <laughs> we love Jesus. And so in this book, she was raised Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. And then towards the end of the book, she also starts to accept Muslim uh, ideas as well. So in her feeling towards God and religion, you can see how she's very conflicted because, you know, she says, why would a God who loves me take my daddy, who's her grandfather, away? Why would he make it so that my mom has to leave all the time? Why 
can't we all just, you know, go to heaven together, have, you know, eternity together? Why are people who in their faith are not going to make it in the end? And she doesn't understand, obviously, as a child, those conflicting um, ideas. She's very confused by how her grandmother and her mom uh, her grandmother is devote to the witness, but her mom, not so much. <laughs> her mom takes her to church, drops her off, and goes with hangs out with her friends. Doesn't go to church <laughs> with them, <laughs> but they have to go. <laughs> and so I think she's not as serious as you know, more devout uh Jehovah's Witnesses and devout Muslims, but she does take from each faith the good. And I think that she leaves behind the parts because again, she's still a child when she's writing from that perspective. So she doesn't have an adult's wisdom to go along with what she's experiencing in real time and how she's supposed to behave at church and then outside of church. But she does have an opinion about it and she's not happy with some of the ways it seems that in her mind, God is failing her. She doesn't see people, you know, life has a cycle. She doesn't understand that part. But I do think she appreciates the community that exists in religion, but not so much the strictness of certain mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, definitely. I, I agree with that. And I don't think that that's necessarily because of her age, because that describes a lot of adults that I know actually uh, feel the exact same way. So, um yeah. Do you think that this book is still relevant today, relevant and relatable? I do. I do. At the beginning, I didn't think so. But when I finished the book, and only because of the state of our country, the way that it is now, um, I would have hoped that it would have been historical reference and not something that maybe we should revisit. We talk about revolution and I talk about um civil rights movement and the marches. And one of the things, this is a little side note, that I did not know back when they were doing civil rights movement, people would meet at um, family members' homes to eat and to discuss um, where they were going to go march. And obviously that makes sense if you think about as an adult, but to know they had meetings to make sure people were safe and well-fed and encouraged before they had to go out and face the world, I thought that was just brilliant piece of history to put in this book because I didn't know that. And I'm much older, Um, (laughs) but I thought for a child, I think that it was great to learn that, but I think it's relevant now because what's happening in in our country. Um, There are talks that are not sure that people are concerned about America maintaining its democracy and maintaining um, the freedom that we're supposed to have as Americans. And I think that you have to remember our history. You have to remember how much people fought to just be able to go to the store, just be able to walk. There's there's a passage in the book where they didn't walk on certain streets because that was the white side. Yes, yes, exactly. And they weren't allowed to do that back then. And we had to fight just to have the same right to walk on the same side of the street. And so I think if generations forget how hard it was to achieve the things we have now, it puts us 
back. And so I think books like this are so important and unfortunately still extremely relevant in a time when they really shouldn't have to be that relevant. We should have been able to move past Mm. this type of treatment, but yet we haven't. Do you think it's important for people who don't identify with Jacqueline's specific experience to read this book? (laughs) So I laugh because, (laughs) yes, but I also want to know your take as well, because I live in Las Vegas and it's very multicultural and you live in a different community, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean it's, it just means it's different. I think, yes, I think that it's been proven that if you haven't been able to uh, interact with someone different than you or experience different culture than your own, it makes it harder for you to empathize and relate um, with a different kind of person. I myself do sometimes venture over to Fox News and those other channels just to check it out. Because I want to know, I'm not a person who believes that my own thoughts are the only thoughts you can have. And so I think that if I can do that, then someone else who's different from Jacqueline can take a moment and read her book and see what it was like for her to grow up in Ohio and then be raised in South Carolina and then walk into adulthood in New York during a time when America was changing. There's a reference to Vietnam in this book which is so important because you can see how America went through so many changes and how the mind of a young child got to experience it all. And I think if you can look through life, through this child's eyes for a moment, then you can see the importance of remembering our past so that it's not repeated again today. Okay. Well, I think that it's important to uh, explain yourself to other cultures and other people's experiences. Uh, 100%, I agree with you on that. Um, whether I think you should read this book, I can't really say. I Like I said, I had a hard time sticking with it. And so um, <laughs> like, I think I'm excited to share about the other books that we're going to be talking about. And I do hope that our listeners will join us in in either reading this one, Brown Girl Dreaming, or any of the others that we'll be talking about in this series. So, Natasha, what are your uh, final impressions of Brown Girl Dreaming? And then uh, we have a little bit of time left, and so we I just wanted to talk about other books by... Um, Uh, other banned books by Black authors and uh, which ones we might possibly be uh, going over in the series. Absolutely. I, my final impressions of Brown Girl Dreaming, um, I wish that I had read it before. I, and I know that I'm going to read it again. Um, (laughs) I'm thankful that I, I'm so thankful that I had the chance to read this book at 43. Yes, I'm 43. (laughs) I'm thankful that a moment occurred where I was able to read a book by an amazing author that told a story that I didn't realize I desperately needed to know. Um, I will definitely be trying again to have my daughter and later my son read this book. I'm always a stickler for books and my children and even though they protest sometimes um I I still carry on and say please give it a try (laughs) just read the first chapter um but I think it was a beautiful book 
I think it was very well written. It was so amazing. Every single moment in this book, I was glued to my computer. I wished I had, I, I'm old fashioned. I love the book and the pages and smelling a new page that I haven't read yet and feeling it in my fingers. I love all of that, but I wish I had this book in my hand. I wanted to see how thick it was and what is next when I had to have it on the computer screen. But I think that it was beautiful and okay. I'm thankful that I had read it i'm glad that you brought that up so you read it on is it kindle or um on some on a computer on the computer okay sorry i don't even know if i can say that um and then i read it um in the audio format as i mentioned before and of course you could find it online if you want to order a hard copy maybe you could find it in your local library that would be um that would be preferable So um, if you are just joining us, I'm Christina Michelle. I'm here with our show's producer, Natasha Boozer, and we have been having a conversation about banned books that are written by Black authors. And the first one that we chose to talk about in our series is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. So there are other books that we're going to be discussing over the course of our season, and I'm just going to mention a few titles. I'm not sure which one is going to be next, but all of these have been banned in different arenas for different reasons. So The Hate You Give is one of them, and it's written by Angie Thomas in 2017, and it was challenged and banned for uh, promoting an anti-police message. And Natasha, have you read The Hate You Give by chance? I haven't, but I know there's a movie that I've been too afraid to watch Mm -hmm. because it seems very like heavy, but I would read the book. I think the book would be easier for me to work through than watching it in real time on a movie. Okay. And then the next one, which is actually a really popular title, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, and it's by Maya Angelou. And that one was written in 1969. And I have not read that one, but I'm looking forward to it. I hope it I hope it will be one that we can add to our list. Um, that one was uh, challenged for vulgarity and uh, sexually explicit material. And then there's The Color Purple, which is probably the most uh, notable uh, title in in this list. Almost everybody that I know has seen The Color Purple or heard of The Color Purple um, or knows a line or quote from the movie. Um, But I think that the book is very different. Um, I actually have read that one. Um, And that one is by Alice Walker, was written in 1982. And then there's The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And I actually put this one on my list after we did the first that first um, show with Nia D a couple seasons ago where we talked about banned books. And I never actually got to it, but um, Morrison's book was challenged for, um, it just says for graphic content. And so it's not really clear what that content was. And then there's Song of Solomon by... Uh, Toni Morrison as well. And then there's Beloved by Toni Morrison. So I think that we'll probably pick one of the Toni Morrison books to get into during during our series. So um, 
also, oh, I'll mention this one as well, because Natasha, I think that you started reading this one, The 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And that's a fairly new one. That one was written in 2019. Okay, so there's quite a few, and I hope that our listeners will, um, that you'll be encouraged by the conversation that we had today and by this topic to maybe take a look, like do a quick Google search on books banned by Black authors and see if there's anything that stands out to you. Um, maybe you'll be uh, encouraged or inspired to to read along with us or to pick a title that is interesting to you and to read it. And if you do, we would love to hear your thoughts and get some feedback about it. So Natasha, I want to thank you again for this conversation and for making it uh, just really come alive for our listeners and even giving me a different perspective on uh, the book Brown Girl Dreaming. Our banned books by Black authors episodes will air every month, and we hope that you'll tune in. And as I said, we hope that you'll even be inspired to read along with us or to pick your own titles. This is Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle, and I am here with Natasha Boozer. And we are just concluding our conversation on banned books by Black authors. Natasha, is, is there anything that you would like to say in closing? Sorry, it's such a mouthful. I like saying it, but it's, <laughs> I want to come up with an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's a lot. Um, I would say I didn't know the Clock Purple was banned. I was surprised to hear that because it was it came out so long ago and we've all seen the movie. Mm-hmm. I can definitely understand why 1619 would ruffle some feathers. It's not an easy read at all. It's very uh, it's very historically accurate because it's told from people's actual experiences through poetry and news articles and things of that such. And so it's it's definitely a difficult book to read. It was a gift from my parents to all of us uh, adult children. And 
I haven't been able to get past chapter three because it's very, it's just very, it's very honest. And I, when I read, I get pictures in my head, like a movie. And so I put it in my drawer and said, I need a break because okay. <laughs> it's breaking my heart. But I think that every person of color should read it. Uh, it's very important. So I would say, I do want to have that book on our list. I'm just not ready to read it yet. Okay, so we'll, we'll it do it together. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thankful we started this. And I'm excited to see where it's going to go. Absolutely. And um, as I said before, make sure that you check with your our local library uh, to see if any of the titles that we mentioned earlier are available there or if they can be brought in. Okay, well, we are going to go ahead and end this show um, with Today in Black History. And Today in Black History, we celebrate African-American painter Jacob Lawrence. Lawrence was born on September 7th in 1917 in Atlantic City, New Jersey. He moved to New York as a teenager and took classes at the Harlem Workshop, where he was mentored by African-American artist Charles Alston. Lawrence's lengthy career centered around depicting the history and struggles of Black culture. As one of the most influential artists of his generation and best-known painters of the 20th century, using bold colors and strong, simple designs, his art has been described as dynamic cubism. Jacob Lawrence used his art to shine a light on life in the Black community. He is a pioneer that paved the way for future artists to have the courage to do the same. We appreciate you for listening today, and we look forward to hearing any feedback you have. Our email address is junobaa at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching BAA Juno. And our mailing address is P.O. Box 33734, Juno, Alaska 99803. Today's show was produced by Natasha Boozer. And until next week, may your life be blessed and flow with ease. I'm Christina Michelle, and this has been Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich Conversations is underwritten by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon, celebrating Juno's diversity of culture, language, and heritage. You're listening to Culture Rich. Culture Rich.
This is for the outcast, so lost control, no one knows. Sing it for the can't go back. Sing it for the broken past. Sing it for the just found out life is now upside down. If you're looking for hope tonight, raise your Our differences together we are bolder, braver, stronger. Hey, hey, hey. hey what's up, man? Hey, brother, what's up? Uh, this is a hey, big doing? party, man. Yeah, I Brother, there's far too many of you die. 